0: Exactly my thoughts, Pastor Bob. I hope I don't blow it this evening. (laughs) And this is what makes us kindred spirits. We speak as we think, and you always know what you're up to, and that is a great blessing in a brother minister. Brothers and sisters, it is for two reasons at least a great privilege for me to stand here in this pulpit, and I really appreciate the invitation uh, for one, as I just said, uh, Pastor Bob and I, but not only Pastor Bob and I, but also uh, Dr. Trumper and myself have become friends in this short time that I've been here, and I find it a very pleasant uh, thing to be here uh, in this pulpit this evening. Furthermore, you might not have known this, but I was once, some moons ago, an OPC pastor in the neighboring presbytery of Ohio. Neighboring, I would think, my Geography in this country is not that good, so it's uh, also a privilege to come back into an, uh, I almost said Orthodox pulpit, but Orthodox Presbyterian pulpit, I should say, and this is a great uh, privilege. Um, If we could count uh, elders and pastors in this sanctuary tonight, I think we would come to a quite impressive number, considering uh, the size of the crowd here, and... uh, This is uh, something that is not to be underestimated. I wonder if you ever looked at pastors and elders as gifts, um, gifts from Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, driven by the Holy Spirit, tells us exactly that, that elders and deacons, are gifts from Jesus Christ. It says, when he, Christ that is, ascended on high, he led uh, a host of captives and he gave gifts um, to men. And then in verse 11, he goes on to describe these gifts, saying, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. We can summarize pastors And elders. And if we read on further, we also see to what end the church has received those precious gifts. It says they are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness. Of Christ, so no small task here for um, ministers and elders. So, in his ascension, Christ gave us, the church, two major gifts, and the one gift is his Holy Spirit. He equips us with his presence through the Holy Spirit, but also pastors and elders. But he gave those gifts not just for the fun of it. Um, It's pretty clear from the Scriptures. But he gave them for a purpose. He gave them for a holy purpose. Namely, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. But you might say, well, isn't it only the pastors? Uh, Maybe the elders to some extent who do the ministry. No, it's clear here. For the equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So the preachers, the teachers, and elders all have as their primary duty in their ministries to equip those in the church for the work of ministry. And that would be a nice saying in and of itself, but we do ask, what is Paul really referring to? What exactly is this work of ministry that the church is called to do when you ask people about what is the mission of the church or what is the primary mission of the church, you get all kinds of answers. Many of them quite disappointing. Well, some would say that it's about feeding uh, of the poor. Others would say being kind to the world, and others would say to evangelize. And none of these answers is entirely uh, correct. At least not according to the scriptures. Because this equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry is not just a shell. It's not just a platitude that we can fill with whatever we are pleased or whatever we want to see our church to be doing. This is not a pick and choose situation where it says just the work of the ministry. You figure out which ministry you want to do. No. God has created the church for a very specific reason. And he has given her very specific marching orders. And these marching orders, this commission, our great general has given to his emissaries, his disciples, for his church, right before his ascension. And we find it, of course, in Matthew chapter 28, if you want to turn there now. Matthew chapter 28, and verses 16 through 20, what we commonly call... The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28 and verses 16 through 20. And this is not human literature, but the word of the living God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This for the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing also to the preaching thereof. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, while this text seems to be one of the best recognized texts of all of the Bible, I will make the case this evening that the Great Commission has nevertheless become a forgotten commission. In this short text, At least in the Greek, the word word all appears a total of four times. And yet it seems that every single one of these all's is being misunderstood by a vast majority of today's evangelicalism. Since our risen Savior is here using covenantal language... The Great Commission has a three-part covenantal structure. We will use this structure as our three points. It is first declaration, then commandment, and then promise. So first declaration, then commandment, and then promise. A covenantal structure for us here. And we shall use these three points as our structure. Now first to the declaration. He begins by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, it is utterly important for us to see that the Great Commission was given after the resurrection. This is not a coincidence. We know there is no coincidence at all. Such a thing does not exist. But there is a strong purpose why it was given, and it could only have been given after the resurrection. <coughs> all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. You see, there is a dramatic contrast between Jesus' saying before... The resurrection is saying like John chapter 5 verse 19. The son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing. And statements like we have before us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's a stark contrast between those two statements. Something has surely changed with the resurrection as with it Christ's ministry of humiliation has ended. And his ministry of exaltation has begun. Christ had fulfilled Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, when he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the rewards of verse 9 have kicked in, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. His ministry of humiliation has ended and his ministry of exaltation has begun. Now, in this sanctuary here this, this evening, I can in good conscience refer to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, can I not? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in very orderly manner, separates those two ministries for us. First, in question 27, it asks us, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Before the resurrection, his humiliation. And the answer is, Christ's humiliation consistent in being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death on the cross, and being buried, continuing under the power of death for a time. That is his ministry of humiliation. His incarnation, he's being put under the law. He's being mistreated, suffering from the miseries of this veil of tears. But then we ask, what then was the ministry of exaltation? And that's what question 28 asks. Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? And the answer is, Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. I don't know if you saw a little difference in those two questions. Because question 27 asks in the past tense, wherein did did Christ's humiliation uh, consist? But question 28 asks about the present continuing, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation. Why is that? Is that a a coincidence? We just said there are no coincidences. Did the Westminster divines in the 1640s not take uh, good care or not uh, apply any attention? Of course, that is not the case. It is in the present tense because Christ's exaltation is still ongoing. It has not ended He is still exalted, and He will be exalted in all eternity. This is not just for a short time. It was not just the resurrection. It was not just the ascension. Those were just the beginnings of His exaltation. Christ's exaltation will never end. He will never be humiliated again. He will never become lowly ever again in this world. His ministry has been once and for all fulfilled. You have to understand the fundamental thing about the Ascension. The fundamental issue that we must not miss here with the Ascension is that the Ascension is Christ's enthronement. It is an induction into the heavenly throne. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This enthronement... And Christ's investiture with universal authority is an ongoing theme in all of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament. It is the culmination of all of history. Peter, for example, in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, says that David knew that God would set one of his descendants on his throne. And he is seated there. Beloved, he is seated there in victory and in expectation of ultimate victory, as Peter emphasized by citing the father's words to the son in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yes, that's in the Bible. And he concludes his sermon with this proclamation. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now what does it then mean that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth? The word all here is used in a so-called distributive meaning. What that means is that it denotes all kinds of authority. Or I should put another uh, emphasis here. All kinds of authority. Every authority there is, every authority there is in heaven or on earth is ultimately his. Authority over heaven and earth means the spiritual and also the temporal realm. It includes, of course, this world. It includes our lives. Over angels, fallen, and others. Over states, over the family, over individuals. Over education, over science, over medicine, over literature, over everything, he has authority. Jesus was not given some authority or a little bit of authority, as some Christians seem to think, with all the pessimism that is going around among evangelicals these days, but all authority. How much do you want to interpret the word all? When God says all, He means all. And all, by definition, means no exception. If you call therefore Jesus Lord, you must call Him Lord over the totality of your life, over everything. Nothing is to be held back, nothing is exempt. He is Lord over all areas, over all realms, over all spheres. In this first all, Christ is declaring his enthronement and his comprehensive and all encompassing authority. This opening declaration is the basis for the rest of the Great Commission. And that's why we find the word therefore right in the next sentence. The commandment, verse 19 Go therefore. Wherefore? Because he has authority. Over all things in heaven and on earth. Go therefore. This is the, the first part is the driving force. It is the reason. It is the assurance for this reason. Because Christ has all authority over everything. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe and hear again in all, all that I have commanded you. It says all nations, does it not? I don't think I have to explain much about the geographic or ethnic scope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus marveled at the faith of a centurion. And he says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, and here it comes, many will come from east and west And recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will come from all over the world. All nations, all tribes, and all tongues to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Greek word used here, for all nations... Ethne, or etne, however you want to pronounce it, is by no means to be understood that God will save a few individuals from this tribe, a few individuals from that country, a few here and a few there. This is not what it means. But this word means not countries. It means cultures. Masses of people that are united by one cultural agreement. Bound together by a cultural identity. Christ's claim here is pretty counter-cultural. It's anti-individualistic, if you want. It is not geared towards some individuals here or there, nor is he speaking about kingdoms. He does not say basileia. He does not say kingdoms, as if he was speaking about political spheres. No, he's not talking about political. He doesn't even talk about races. He talks about cultures that have a cultural identity together, whole collectives, whole aggregates of people who are united by certain cultural identities. He refers to the conversion and discipling of the whole human race and all of its cultural and social endeavors, and not just getting a few decisions for Jesus here and there, as we seem to look at it sometimes when we talk about missions. He hereby directly contradicts, directly contradicts the common pessimism and defeatism that we find in many of our churches. And he also contradicts the the, 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 uh, truncated view of the missions endeavor, endeavor of most of current evangelicalism that only focuses on the conversion of some scattered individuals and then leaving them uh, out to dry. The Great Commission, my dear friends, is a comprehensive commission, as it encompasses not only all peoples, but all areas of their lives as well. And that's the third all, as we are called to teach these converted cultures to observe all that Christ has commanded. This means, and you really have to be careful here, and you have to listen carefully. This means that we do not only bring a narrow lens gospel to the ends of the earth for people just to get safe, just naked salvation, as it were. But we also give an answer to, as we want to quote Francis Schaefer to the question, how shall we then live? It is not enough for Christianity to just throw out tracts with John 3.16 and hope that they somehow get it right with God and get reconciled with Him through Jesus Christ. And they have no idea, they have no clue how to live their lives, how to glorify Him. The one thing that we seem to have understood, misunderstood or lost is that we have been saved for a reason. And this reason is not to go to heaven. This reason is, my dear Presbyterian friends, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. For this task, we have been saved. Not just to have a nice and cozy future in heaven, where we play our harps all day and are just happy. That is not the reason for our salvation. We have been saved to bring glory to His name, like everything else has been made to glorify God. And we ought to teach the whole world to observe all that he has commanded. We do understand and we do readily and wholeheartedly acknowledge that unless one is born again first, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. We have to be very careful there. It all begins with the birth from above. Because if a person is not born from above, he cannot even see. He doesn't even want what is right. And therefore, we begin every missional endeavor with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation for sinners. We begin with our own family and we carry it to the ends of the earth, I hope. By ushering people to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to find reconciliation with God. And eternal life. But we must not stop there. If we want to be obedient to the great commission. We also have to teach them. As we teach our own children. And in our own churches. To observe all that Christ has commanded. All. And therefore we must say. That the Great Commission does not only command us to evangelize in the narrow sense of the word. And that evangelism might have some cultural implications. No, the command is to redeem whole cultures with everything that is within them. There's a reason why we have this book with 66 books. And not just John 3.16. It is a comprehensive guide for our thinking, for our speaking, for our living, for every area of life, for every sphere of society. Why are we content with a truncated Bible? Why are we content with a truncated Christian life? Why are we content with a truncated view on missions and evangelism? The command is not To have some cultural implications, the command is to save whole cultures with everything in them. Every aspect of life has to come under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It doesn't even say every action. It doesn't say every person, it doesn't say every word, because it knows, God knows who has made us, that every word, every deed, every person, every life, every culture, begins with our thinking. And therefore we need to begin by taking every one of our thoughts captive to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. It uses military language, because God knows, of course, that this is a war in our own hearts. It has to begin in our own hearts to be obedient in thinking and speaking and living. And it has to go out to the ends of the earth together with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. First the human heart and then everything else. The law, education, marriage and divorce, the economy. Family life, the arts, academia, child rearing, mathematics, medicine, recreation, everything must be brought under the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. My dear friends, there was a time when the Reformed faith was not as it is today wrongly described. By the so-called five points of Calvinism, which is a starkly truncated view of the Reformed faith. But it was described as all of Scripture, for all of life. That was the Reformed faith. The five points of Calvinism are just a part of our soteriology. All true, of course, but it's only a tiny part. Reformed doctrine, Reformed living, Reformed thinking was always all of this book for all of this life. Without exceptions, that's the core of Reformed theology, and not the five points of Calvinism. And let me be very clear. I'm not talking about a neo-Kyperian triumphalism that thinks that if we just add a few quasi-Christian principles, like put them a little bit over a culture, then we have evangelized the world. I'm not talking about that, but I do speak of Christ's claim that is indeed reflected in Abraham Kuyper's words that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, doesn't cry out, Mine! You've all heard these words. Maybe ad nauseum. I don't know. I don't know where you went to college. But have you ever thought about them? That there is not a square inch, not a square inch in the whole domain Of all of human existence. Over which Christ, who is Lord over every square inch. Over which he doesn't cry out, mine. Everything that you are, everything that you own, everything that you do is Christ's. And therefore you have to do it for him and according to his precepts. And driven by a love for him and the gratitude for what he has done for you. That is the extent of the Great Commission. And only a person to whom indeed has been given all authority in heaven and on earth can give such a command. Because only he can guarantee success. Which leads us to our third and last point. The promise. The promise is, and behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. As one can see from this formulation, the Great Commission is given for the long run. Although there were always some who, who thought and taught that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent every day, and thereby they paralyzed the troops. They would say, no, he could come at any time. They're still running around in all of our churches. Oh, no, he could come tomorrow. Oh, come, Lord Jesus Christ, come. Yes, we all understand we want him to come, but there's a world to be saved. Have we fulfilled the Great Commission yet? Have we brought all cultures to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are we just sitting at home, enjoying retirement, and hoping he comes home uh, home soon or takes us home soon so we can glide into the next eternal retirement? That is not what the Bible teaches. For 2,000 years, the church has been paralyzed by false teachers who tell us, just don't worry, he's going to come anyway. Just to be snatched out. Out of our problems, out of our troubles, out of, out of the war, or out of the hardship. But the formulation that we have here and in many other places teaches us that we are in it for the long run. We're in it for the long haul. In the last 200 years, the paralysis of the church, especially in this country, has increased. With a new and utterly, almost obsessively uh, pessimistic eschatological system, dispensationalism. And, and statements like, why, why, uh, why polish the brass on a sinking ship? Everything has to go down anyway. Everything go bad. Don't work. Don't worry. Don't bring the gospel to the ends of the earth because there's no point in it. And whenever something goes negative in a society, they say, see, I told you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I told you all along. The end is near. And the troops have been Paralyzed. Preachers stop preaching, evangelists stop evangelizing, and the people of God stop commi- commissioning uh, or filling out their commission that was given to them to the Lord, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as the uses of the first alls demand a full application of the word all, so does this fourth use of it. And by the way, there is an all in the Greek. It's just not in the translation. It doesn't have to be. Whether you say all days or always uh, is not of the issue. There is an all um, in the Greek. So Christ's presence with his people is real and it is comprehensive. He didn't say, never mind, uh, I'll be back any day now. You don't have to worry about it. In fact, he warned his disciple that it might take long until his return Just think of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, where Jesus said, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So they all were waiting. They thought, He's imminent, He's coming soon. They didn't plan for the long haul. And then they were surprised. Well, right after that uh, parable... In the same chapter, there's the parable of the talents. And he warns, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the with them. What I'm trying to say here is, brothers and sisters, we need to do our work. We need to be in our work for the long run. It is not proper. It is not right. It is not biblical to hope that he comes soon, that he snatches you out from a difficult task. I mean, the the sky is falling right now uh, because of some things that have happened. One election was enough and the sky is falling. Oh, it's, it's, it's the end. It's the end. Oh, Lord, come snatch us out instead of us getting up and fighting for the truth. And the more that the evil one attacks, the more we need to work. But instead, we all get pessimistic and we give up. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and snatch us out of the problems. We teach our children the opposite, don't we? When they're in problems, they want us to bail them out. And we say, no, you work yourself out of this. You need to learn to take care of yourself. But as adults, we give a horrible example. As soon as things go a little bit bad or seem to go a little bit bad or there's an eschatological bump in the road, we say, oh, Lord, take us out. We're tired of it, not understanding that we are warriors in a war. that we need to fight, act like man, or quit you like man, as it says in the authorized version and we must not grow weary, beloved. Christ assures us that he is with us. And behold, I am with you always, or all days, to the end of the age. The clause in the original begins with I. And whatever is at the beginning of a Greek sentence is the emphasis. You can translate with good justification, I, I myself am with you. As if he's saying, no, I'm not sending some emissary I'm with you. I'm with you through my spirit. I am with you through my preachers. I am with you through my elders. I am with you. You're not alone. This is not only an assurance of Christ's presence, but also a guarantee of victory. As we also read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Do we not read these passages? Do we not read them? Our forefathers, they were all optimistic. They knew that Christ sits on the throne. When they were downcast, they went to Psalm 2 and other texts like that. Why do the nations rage against God's anointed one and against us as his people? And then he says, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. He shall hold them in derision. That's victory, my dear friends. That is victory. That is not a losing battle. There's a guarantee for us that the Lord Jesus Christ will be successful. I don't know if it is appropriate if I uh, quote this person. I do it anyway. In his farewell address to Congress in April of 1951, General Douglas MacArthur said these famous words, about war he said war's very object is victory not prolonged indecision in war there is no substitute for victory he said that was his farewell address after Truman basically demoted him beloved the church today is the church militant which means that it is the church at war It is not the church defeatist, and it is not the church glorified yet. It is the church militant, which means that we are at war. For this war, our great general has given us instructions on how to fight. While quoting this great commission, endlessly we have forgotten its content and have programmed ourselves for losing and for defeat. While our general had given us clear and strong orders, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May God help us to stand strong, and to have our eyes lifted upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen and amen. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our most gracious Heavenly Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this great commission that lies before us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you convict us. Oh, do convict us. And encourage us, may we stand strong in the battle, knowing that the victory is already ours in Christ Jesus. May we bring this gospel to the ends of the earth, but not in a narrow lens, but maybe teach them truly to keep all things that you have taught us. And maybe do the same in our own households, in our own environments, in our own neighborhoods, in our own churches. Oh, Lord, help us and strengthen us. Oh, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great General.